0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Psalm 103. Well, I saw a study recently that reported that the average adult forgets four things per day. So that's encouraging. You're not crazy. You're normal. It's okay. It's okay. People forget all kinds of things. They forget where they put their keys. They forget where their phone is. They They forget why they walked into a room. Has that happened to you? Uh, People forget to take out the recycling. Have you ever had that terrifying moment when you're drinking your morning coffee and all of a sudden you hear that sound? Oh, the truck's coming down the road. And you think, I can still make it. And so there's a mad rush to get the bins out as the truck's coming down the street. I don't know if that ever happens in your house. In our house, we call that Wednesday. People forget names. People forget birthdays and anniversaries. Not recommended, don't do that. We forget all kinds of things. So what we have to do is we have to develop little tricks and little tools to help us remember. We put reminders and alerts in our phone. We keep to-do lists so that we can check it. What do I have to do? Okay, remember what I have to do? We put events, meetings in our calendar, otherwise we'll forget them. And so we have to help ourselves to remember. But there's another thing we might be forgetting. What if I told you that we all, even faithful Christians, are at risk of forgetting God? Not not forgetting in like an intellectual sense, like you wake up one morning accidentally an atheist. I can't believe I forgot. Not like that, but, but what I mean is our hearts, our hearts faltering in our belief, not really seeing, not really believing, not really grabbing hold of God as we ought to. We might have a robust theology, we might have a deep storehouse of biblical information, but still our heart can fail to remember and worship and live with the awe and fear and joy that we ought to. So the question for us today, are you today living a life of remembering and worshiping God with all that you are? Or is your heart and life so busy, so hectic, so frenzied, distracted, cluttered, that your awe and your worship are waning, struggling, faltering? Well, in Psalm 103, David recognizes in his own heart this tendency to forget. Worship is like a fire. It needs to continually be stoked, right? If you light the fire and forget it, walk away, the fire wanes and grows cold. You need to stoke the fire. You need to keep adding logs to the fire to keep it hot, keep it roaring. So in order to stoke the fires of worship, David is intentionally reminding himself of God, of who God is, of what he's really like, of what he's done. And this psalm is actually rather unique because in it, David is addressing himself. You know, many of the psalms are prayers addressed to God. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's It's a prayer to God. Other psalms are directed to the people of God and are about God. So Psalm 34 says, "O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. But this psalm is, is actually somewhat unique within the psalter in that it is David writing to himself. He starts and ends in the same way. It's a point of emphasis. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So here David is remembering. He's urging himself to remember and worship. And we must do the same. We must do the same. So let's jump in to verse one. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So David starts and he ends by urging himself, Bless the Lord. But have you ever wondered about that phrase? What does that even mean to bless the Lord? I I get how God can bless us. We talk about blessings we've received from God, but how do we bless God? He doesn't need anything. Well, we find the answer if we flip over to Psalm 34, verse 1. Where David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And so you have Hebrew parallelism. Both lines are saying the same thing with different words. To bless the Lord is to praise him. It is for his praise to be in your mouth. To bless the Lord is to praise, to sing, to speak, to sing with wonder and awe at his greatness and his goodness. And so David is urging his own soul to praise. And then he adds this, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, all that is within me. David is refusing half-hearted worship. He's refusing to thank God with his lips while his heart is cluttered and distracted and distant. He's refusing to worship God, you know, periodically here and there when I have time. He's refusing to give weak and partial praise to the God of all glory. All that is within me is a call to a full and complete praise. Mind, heart, soul, body, everything. All that I am, all that I have for your name, your glory, your praise, O Lord. How can we live this way? David calling us to a robust, wholehearted, all-in life of praise. How can we we live like that? Well, verse 2 contains the key. The key to sustaining and fueling this life of all in praise for God's glory. It says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And so the key to worship, worshiping God with all that we are, is not forgetting all that he is. The key to worshiping God with all that we are is not forgetting all that he is. Do you know why it is that you don't live a life of all in praise to the God who is worthy of all praise? It's not a deficiency in God that keeps you from praising him like that. It's your own forgetfulness. See, if you knew all that God is and all that he has done, if you were fully aware of all his glory, you would never stop praising him, right? That's why we see, whenever we see a glimpse of heaven We see the angels who have full awareness of who God is, of what He's like. They never stop praising Him. With all that you are, with all that you have, you would joyfully praise His holy name without hesitation, without moderation, without ceasing. The problem of your half hearted praise is not a problem of God's worthiness, but a problem of your own forgetfulness. We're forgetful. We, we forget who God is. We, we have the stats, we have the text, we have the, the theology, but we forget who God is. His greatness, his glory, his power and grace, his love, his splendor and beauty. If we get bored with God, it's not because God is boring. It's because we are forgetful. We forget what God has done for us in choosing us, in saving us, in loving and forgiving, in welcoming and accepting, in comforting and guiding. If, if God does not seem utterly amazing to us, the problem is not with God, but we are so, so forgetful. And when we forget, our view of God shrinks and diminishes. God doesn't change, but our view of him becomes pathetic and small. We forget what God has promised us in Christ, as his people, that he will sustain us all of our days, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, that he will raise us up on the last day and death cannot defeat us if we are in Christ. We forget who God is, we forget what he's done, we forget what he's like, we forget his promises and so we fail to worship him as he deserves. Now we need to notice a critical connection in verse two. Forgetfulness and praise are opposites. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Which tells me you're either doing one or you're doing the other. In, in any moment, in any situation, in any circumstance, you're either doing one or you're doing the other. You're either praising or you're forgetting. If you aren't praising God in a particular situation, in a particular aspect of your life, in a particular challenge or situation, it's, it isn't because he's not worthy. It's because you, you have forgotten in that moment, in that way, in that situation. When you do not honor God by trusting him completely, it is because you have forgotten how beautifully trustworthy and dependable he is. When you don't praise God in your painful circumstance, it's because you've lost sight of God's goodness toward you. You've allowed your situation to occupy your entire view and to overwhelm your vision of God. And so God shrinks and your problems grow because you look at the wrong things and you forget. In any situation, friends, you're either praising or you're forgetting. So what, what are we gonna do? And so David has to urge his own soul, don't forget, remember who God is. And then the rest of this psalm is designed to help him remember and praise, remember and praise to so stoke his heart to worship. So he organizes it around three things. Three things we must not forget as we seek to live a life of all in praise. Three things we must not forget. Number one, don't forget what God has done. Number one, don't forget what God has done. Take a look, verse two to verse five. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles david starts by reminding himself of the ways that god has been good to him three couplets three parallel lines here he starts with our most desperate need forgiveness god forgives he forgives all our sin amazing he heals the body he restores And then he redeems from the pit and he crowns with steadfast love and mercy. Amazing, right? Look at the the image from the pit, from the bottom place, the pit, to the highest place, crowned. Crowned with what? Crowned with his love, crowned with his mercy. And he says he satisfies us with good, he renews us. Man, we are so tempted to chase satisfaction and youth in all kinds of places, always finding it just out of reach. Isn't it true? We believe the false promises of our idols who whisper to us that we can find satisfaction for the deep longings of our soul in career success or wealth or marriage or sex or health, that in those things you will find satisfaction and renewal and youthfulness and life. But all along, the only one who can truly satisfy us is God himself. In the famous prayer of Augustine in his confessions, you awaken us to delight in your praise for you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. God is the only one who can satisfy and restore the soul. And think about this. If David, if David could remember and praise, how much more can we praise in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Right? Think about the goodness that you experience if you are united to Christ by faith. Your sins Your sins are exhaustively, comprehensively, and completely forgiven. How? Because the sinless Son of God took your place and paid your debt and died the death that you deserve and stands now at the right hand of the Father on high, interceding for you, praying for you. There's no condemnation, but only grace. We will be healed of every disease when we are raised to resurrection life by the power of Jesus. Jesus has defeated death forever and so we will live resurrection life with him forever in glory. Our sickly bodies raised and restored. Death will never have the final word. Resurrection is the final word. And we will truly be crowned with love and mercy, adopted as his sons and daughters, heirs of the king, welcomed into his kingdom, welcomed into his home, into his very heart. And there is a day coming when we will be satisfied beyond all imagination as we stand in his presence, rejoicing in our God. See, the fact is, David didn't know the half of it. (laughs) David didn't know the half of it. We, We have so much to praise God for. We cultivate praise in our own hearts as we remember all that God has done for us. You can't look too long, you can't look too hard at the gospel of grace and what he's done. It stokes the fires of worship. And so if you ever feel, if you ever feel like you you just don't, you know, you don't feel like praising, if you ever find yourself, you don't feel like praising, It is because you have forgotten what God has done. It's time to review and remember and reorient your life around the truth of what God has done rather than your feelings and your forgetfulness. And so ask ask the question, are you decisively forgiven of all your sin? Are you adopted as his own child, the child of the king? Are you loved beyond your wildest imagination? Does he promise to be with you and sustain you? through whatever life comes until that great day of resurrection life, then remember and praise. Remember and praise. Secondly, don't forget what God is like. Don't forget what God is like. Take a look at verse 6 as David shifts to the character of God. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So secondly, don't forget what God is like. So David shifts from God's actions to his character. In these verses, David is remembering what God is like, what his nature is and and these verses really are sort of a poetic remembrance of Exodus chapter 32 to 34 in You know, in verse 8, it directly quotes Exodus 34, 6, and 7. So do you remember the story of the Exodus? God saves his people, the people of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. They're saved by the blood of the Lamb. Then they're brought through waters of judgment, a kind of baptism as the people of God. And they're brought into the wilderness, and God brings them to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And there they encounter his glorious presence on the mountain, you know, there's lightning and thunder and fire and they enter a covenant with him. They are his people. And then it's while Moses is up the mountain receiving the Ten Commands, receiving the instructions for the tabernacle that God will dwell with his people. He's, he's up the mountain. Meanwhile, down at the bottom at the same time, the people suddenly give up on God and they break the covenant and they decide to make an idol. You know, it'd be great. Let's worship a cow, Right. And in Acts 7.39, Stephen, summarizing this story, says, in their hearts they turn to Egypt. And that's what happens. See, after all that God had done for them, they quit on God. They volunteer for slavery. They want to go back to the gods of Egypt. They want to make a God like they're more familiar with, like everyone else believes. They want to fit in with the culture. They break the covenant. And so then chapter 32 to 34 of Exodus are really all about solving this problem. How can a holy God... Dwell among such a stubborn, disobedient, idolatrous people? And ultimately, the answer is seen in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, when God reveals his name to Moses. This is God's full name, right? you can make the case that these are the most important verses in the entire Old Testament. They are the most quoted verses within the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament authors are constantly going back to this passage. It's also the longest, most exhaustive self-description of God when he describes himself. It says this, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How can God dwell with his people? The answer won't be found in the people. They won't earn it or deserve it, but the answer must be found in pressing in further to who God is. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now here in Psalm 103, David returns to this episode, returns to this revelation of what God is like. He remembers God's glorious name, his self-revelation. And so this section of Psalm 103 is sort of answering the same question. What does God do when I blow it? How does God react when I make a mess of everything? Well, in verse 9, we see that God is not perpetually angry with us. In verse 10, we see that God does not treat us according to our sins. Isn't it amazing? God doesn't give us what we deserve. So glad that God's not fair, but he's merciful. And, and then, he, it's, you know, we, we really see that he, he's not quick to punish. He, he's not a God that's ready to pounce, like looking for something to ah, judge you. At the heart of who God is resides mercy, grace, compassion, forgiveness, and love. And then love verse 11 to 13. Verse 11 to 13, David uses three images all based out of Exodus 34, borrowing key words from Exodus 34 to help us begin to understand the depth and the greatness of God's love for us. The first image has to do with the greatness of God's love. In verse 11, it is as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's how great his love is towards us in Christ. Now think about this, David writing thousands and thousands of years ago, he has no concept of space travel. He can't imagine a man on the moon. So think about how far away the heavens are for David. So a little science, the earth's upper atmosphere is 100 kilometers above sea level, 328,084 feet. I'm sure you knew that. How high is that above us? Well, the world record, I wanted to look this up, the world record for the high jump is eight feet, one quarter inch. That's a big difference, right? There's, there's no amount of jumping, reaching, climbing that will make up the other 328,076 feet. So here's a little homework for you. I know it's summer. Go home this evening and go stand outside, look up at the stars and the moon, then do your biggest, highest jump, and then wonder, wonder at the greatness of God's love for you in Christ. So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. The second image is in verse 12. It has to do with the decisiveness of God's love. It says he has removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Amazing. Now, since east and west are not locations but directions, they are infinitely apart from each other. It is an unmeasurable distance. Think about it this way. David could have said this. He could have said, as far as Jerusalem is from Babylon, so far does he remove his transgression from us. And we would say, that's amazing. That's incredible. That's like 1,400 kilometers on foot. That could take four to five months to walk that distance, which is how most people traveled. It would be hard for an ancient person to imagine a distance greater than that. From Jerusalem to Babylon, that's amazing. That's a long way. God has removed our sins from us. Just imagine for a sec, traveling somewhere four to five months. I bet you've never traveled anywhere that long. You could travel anywhere in the world these days in less than 24 hours. Pick a point on a map and a plane can get you there, 24 hours. The journey to the moon only took a couple days, right? So imagine the distance, four to five months. That's a long ways. But David didn't say that. He didn't say as far as Jerusalem is from Babylon. He said something infinitely greater than that. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far our sin has been removed from us. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, you and your sin are on opposite horizons, separated by an inseparable distance. Just as you cannot look east and west at the same time, God does not look at you and see your sin, but instead sees the perfect righteousness of Christ in your place. Isn't that amazing? So what this tells us is God doesn't hold a grudge. God doesn't kind of love you and kind of want to judge you. God doesn't forgive and kind of remember and hold it against you. His forgiveness is decisive, comprehensive and final. Isn't that amazing? The third image. The third image shows us the nature of God's love in verse 13. It is the compassionate love of a father for his children. God is not a wish-granting genie or a prayer-answering vending machine, just pumping out, put in your requests and get what. He's not an object to study and scrutinize like a science project. He's not an impersonal force. He's a father. He's a father. His love is the compassionate love of a father toward his children. And that's how he loves you. For those of us who are parents, do you remember that moment when you first met your child? Uh, we have four children, three biological, one adopted. Each one was the same though. When I, whether I watched them being born or the first time I met them, felt the same thing. Overwhelmed with love and awe and joy and fear and delight and compassion. Do you know that feeling I'm talking about? Have you experienced that feeling? Friends, this is the compassion that God the Father has for you. He truly, deeply loves you. Do you believe it? So so what is God like? How does he react when we mess everything up? What's his posture towards us? David says, his love is greater and bigger than you can imagine. His forgiveness is more complete, more comprehensive and more definitive than you will ever realize. His fatherly compassion is better than you could ever hope for. But we so often forget this, don't we? We forget and so we believe foolish things. We do foolish things. We don't really believe that God loves us like this. And so we look for love and affirmation in other places. Not believing, not feeling that God could possibly love us like this. We look for affirmation in our work or in our friends or in our culture. We don't really believe in our hearts that God could forgive us like this. We believe he forgives, but not like this. And so we cover our sin, we hide it. We do everything we can to avoid confessing it, don't we? We don't really believe that he's that forgiving. We don't really believe that God is this glorious. And so we forget to praise him. We give half-hearted praise. We limit our praise. Let me ask you this. What would your life look like if you really, really believed that God was like this. I think you'd probably be more honest with your sin. You would confess quickly and completely, knowing that those who confess find forgiveness, glorious, glorious forgiveness. I think you'd be more prayerful and dependent, knowing that God receives you like a compassionate father, and so you should always run to him. I think you would have far, far less worry, far more trust, knowing that God loves you and has a glorious and beautiful future for you. And I think you would praise him much, much more than you do, knowing that he is worthy of all that we are and all that we have. Don't forget what he's done. Don't forget what he's like. And thirdly, David urges us to don't forget the brevity of life. Don't forget the brevity of life. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Don't forget the brevity of life. So David steps back and he looks at life. Life is so short. Life is transient and frail. Your life is like a wildflower, a weed that just pops up quickly, flourishes, looks you know, looks so strong and then is blown away and forgotten. It's so important for us to have an eternal perspective. All of our successes, accomplishments and possessions are as fleeting as a wildflower. And so that which seems so critical and important today will be gone and forgotten very soon. David's saying this, the things of this world are not worth relying on, resting in or building your life upon. All the success, all the wealth, power and security of the world are ultimately unreliable, a false hope. You want something to build a life on? You want something to really rest in, to build a legacy on? Verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Your your little kingdom, the little kingdom that you're building with with your bank account and your career and your home and your stuff, your little kingdom is frail and will soon be forgotten. God's kingdom is over all and is forever. And so, You want to build your life on something that matters. You build your life on the love of God. Build an identity on who you are as his beloved. Steadfast love. This is the third time in our text we've seen steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word chesed. It's always fun to say, chesed. It's a word that's hard to translate with a single English word. It means love, but it means not like the love that we so often talk about. right? It's a faithful, loyal, committed love. The ESV says steadfast love, that's a good attempt. This is not a love that's transactional where I love you because you're gonna love me back and I really am loving and I get stuff in return and and it's dependent on the other person's love. It's not like that, but a love that is committed and faithful based on covenant promises. Sally Lloyd-Jones in the excellent Jesus Storybook Bible, which is great, even if you don't have kids, you should get it and read it. it. She defines God's love, his chesed, this way. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I think that's pretty good. It'd be hard to squeeze into the translation, but still, that's what should be in your head when you read steadfast love. It's his chesed that moves God to keep his promises to his people even when they fail him. It's chesed that moves God to show love to a people who don't deserve it. It's chesed that sent Christ to the cross. Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's God's love. He loves us when we don't deserve it. He loves us before we do anything. He loves us because he is loving, not because we're lovable. God loves with a faithful, persevering, never giving up covenant love that persists generation to generation and forever. Now that's something to build a life on. That's something to rest in. But we so often forget. When we forget God, we stop fearing him and we start acting foolishly. We start to build our life on temporary things. Like sandcastles at the beach, we build our lives on things that won't last and won't be remembered. It looks so cool, but in a few hours, it's all gonna be gone as if we were never there. And so we forget the brevity of life and we start to believe that that wealth and success and possessions are what really matter. And so we find ourselves wandering off, chasing all the wrong things. So David says, don't forget what God has done. Don't forget what God is like. Don't forget the brevity of life. Remember and praise. Remember and praise. Look how he finishes, verse 20. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. Obeying the voice of his word, bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. David started by urging himself, his own soul to bless the Lord. But now this kind of seems odd, at least to me here at the ending. Because he urges the angels, the hosts of God, his ministers to bless the Lord. He urges the works of God to praise him. But these things don't need urging, right? They already and always do bless and praise the Lord. Why would he be telling them to do that which they're already doing? You know, what's David doing here? The angels, the ministers, the works of God are those that never forget God and all his benefits. They already remember and bless constantly. But every inclination of our sin-stained heart is toward aligning with our culture, and with our neighbors. Because we are sinful creatures, sin still dwells within us. We've been stained by it. We wanna be liked. We wanna fit in. We wanna be affirmed. We wanna be admired. We wanna be successful. There's, there's a gravity. We need to recognize that there's a gravity that pulls our hearts toward aligning with our broken culture and fitting in. But David is calling his own heart to align with the reality of heaven, Don't join the crowd, join the crowds of heaven. Don't align with society, align with heavenly reality. God's angels, his hosts, his ministers and his works know him and praise him always as they should. They never forget, they always remember and they always praise. And now David urges his own soul to join in, to align with that reality. Friends, is your life more aligned with the culture that surrounds you or the reality of heaven? Do the words of your lips and the desires of your heart praise the God of all glory? Or is your heart so cluttered with other pursuits and things like everyone else that God's praise gets drowned out in the noise of your heart? Remember, you're either praising or you're forgetting. In any situation, in any moment, you're either praising or you're forgetting. All of heaven is singing his praises. All his works are praising his name, yet so often our distracted hearts are singing the wrong tune in the wrong key, reading the wrong music. We've forgotten what song we're supposed to be singing. And when we forget, we fall into all sorts of foolish thinking. We don't see God as he is, and so we are lured into chasing love and affirmation in the wrong places. We build our life chasing fleeting successes rather than God. We worry and we doubt. We don't really believe that we are this loved, this forgiven, this accepted. And so our hearts grow cold and our worship dies out. So like David, we must stoke the fires of praise by urging our own self to remember, to remember the unbelievable things that God has done for us in Christ, to remember his his glorious love and mercy and forgiveness and grace towards us. To remember that life is short, but God's love is forever. We must commit ourselves to worship, to gathering as a church, to meditating on scripture, to remembering the gospel, to beholding Christ, to seeing him and being changed, to see the gospel, to, to grow in our praise. Let me ask you this, what are you doing to remember? What, what intentionality do you have to stoke the fires of worship? Please don't tell me you're just kind of going with the flow. Please tell me that you are stoking the fires of worship with intentional remembrance, that you're in the word, that you're with other godly people, that you are with your church family, that you are stoking the fires of worship by beholding Christ in the gospel as often as you possibly can. And so praise him. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Let's pray. God, we have to come to you and confess our forgetfulness. We have busy hearts, we have hectic lives, we have full calendars and Things so quickly get crowded out. Our lives are so busy, we forget you. You're an afterthought on so many days. And so, God, we, we confess right now. And maybe even in this moment, God, you would reveal to us, show to each one how we have wandered away. We've busied our hearts. We've forgotten you. In this moment, in this situation, this aspect of our life, in this season, we have grown forgetful. And then wandered into a whole bunch of foolishness because of it. Just reveal that to us right now, Lord. We confess it. When we read the scriptures, we are so amazed at who you are and all that you've done for us. But God, I pray that we wouldn't read that and walk away, but that you would overwhelm us with such a sense and clarity of who you are, of all your goodness. May we never underestimate you again. May we never diminish you in our own view, that we would see you smaller than you are. Reveal yourself and your glory and your goodness to us so that we will praise you. And God, we, we recognize our own frailty, our, the, the gravity that pulls us towards uh, finding affirmation elsewhere, our own doubts, our own forgetfulness, and so we need your help. I pray that you would so empower us by your Spirit Fill us, empower us for a life of all in worship. Provide us all that we need so that we can live for your name and for your glory. God, you are so good. You are so glorious. And so we praise you. Jesus' name, amen.